It's episode 161 of The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And we're here. We've made it. Another week. Episode 161 of your favourite film podcast. And if it isn't your favourite film podcast, we want to know why. Tell us. Yeah. What can we do? To, what can we do to get that little bit further? We'll, we'll, we'll give. You ask, we'll give. Need to be careful. Needy, then. Need to be careful. <laughs> yeah, I think I sounded too needy. Some people might take that a bit too literally. Yeah, maybe and, we could uh, come round to your house and record it. Would that? Would that help? They might not want us to record the podcast round at their house. Let's <laughs> no, just be we'll careful. be there all day. <laughs> I mean, we spent we spent nearly twenty minutes before we've even started recording today, just going through stuff. Some of okay. it relevant, most of it not. Most of it procrastination, yes. which uh, procrastination is my word of the week. Is uh, it? You, You've been demonstrating it. You know how I'm a nightmare for like when I'm supposed to be editing, I find other things to do. I often like mention. You see, I don't because like, oh, I'm I'm never part of the editing process, so I I don't know this this dark trickery wizardry you speak of, sir. I'll always sit down with it on my screen, ready to edit, and then as soon as it's loaded in, ready to edit, I'll go. Oh, I'm gonna do the dishes, and I'll wander off and find something else to do, or I'll go. Oh, but such and such was on TV last night and I need to watch that. So I'll go and like watch something on TV. And then after I've watched something on TV, I'll go, eh, I've not played on such and such a game on the PlayStation for a while. Every now and then going back to the computer, doing another five minutes work and then going, uh, the washing needs doing. Always find other things to do. It takes me three days to edit the podcast simply because I can't set my mind to it. Well, this week, the procrastination was going as bad as normal. And then it got to the section of the show when we were talking about uh, AIs and you spoke about how uh, in the news section, like you yeah. said about how you'd got it to write a song for you and it was awful. Yeah. So guess who started getting an AI to write a song for him? As part I know where this is going I've seen this. <laughs> um, I, I did. I started off with like, I wanted a song about chickens with machine guns and it was quite witty, the result that it gave me. But after doing multiple ones of different things, I then did write a rap record in the style of Eminem about procrastinating when you should be editing a podcast. And what it's given me is utter gold. <laughs> I'm just going to say that was just fabulously meta at that point. <laughs> I'm just going to give, I mean, it gave me like six verses. So I'm just going to give you the first verse and the first part of the chorus. Sitting at my desk, staring at my screen, got a podcast to edit, but I'm feeling so obscene. My mind keeps wandering, thinking about other things. Wish it could wish it could focus, but procrastination stings. Should be editing my podcast, but I keep procrastinating. My mind's on vacation, can't stop hesitating. Got deadlines to meet, but I can't seem to get going. Stuck in this rut and my motivation's slowing. I mean, it's gold. I, we need a we need a beat. We need to get this recorded. We need to get it out there. It'll be the theme tune for the show. Record it. <laughs> uh, record a version of you doing it. And I will and you, put you, something. Some... I'll put something to it. I'll, Let's I'll do put this. some music we'll, to it, and then we'll 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 pop it out as a bonus. <laughs> we could sell it as uh, uh, some sort of charity. It shows that AIs can be fun, but let's be honest, it, it it's not going to win any. Uh music awards if we ever do record it but it it was just fun how it got everything just spot on um but yeah that was me procrastinating because that's how my mind works well you you send it over i'll put your <laughs> uh, lyrics on it uh your voice over it and we'll we'll find some avenue to publicize it I, i've got to point out actually something you had as your neat thing and and i sort of disagreed and that was uh picard Mm -hmm. season three and i said yeah i think it's okay and you you had it as as one of your trusty neat things it clicked 
for me about episode four and five, probably episode five, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And I watched the latest episode just last night. Um, I'm totally into it. And the, one of the things I just wanted to point out, yes, it's it's very dark. It is kind of the an end of the road movie with everybody coming back and making little mm. cameos or becoming part of the team. And and I and I get that because they're after this, they're never going to do it again, probably. But um, Jonathan Frakes, who was always in the series, just very stoic and charming, and you know, um, a good playoff against uh, Patrick Stewart. Yeah. But I think in this, because he's got more to do, and he's almost a co-lead. How darn good he is! How darn charming he actually is! And and I would want to see a Riker series based on based on this because I think he's yeah. so he, he absolutely shines throughout this series. Yeah, I can't agree more. I mean, I'd love to see a. I'd love to see some kind of spin-off from Picard because I have been, like you say, absolutely enjoying this season. And I think it's getting stronger each episode. Mm, yeah, it's building to something. The last couple of seasons kind of like started strong and then just meandered. Yeah. Whereas this has kind of slowly built up and then got boom, this is where the story is going. Interestingly, while I'm watching modern day Star Trek, I'm also halfway through my revisit of Next Generation. I'm halfway through season four at the moment. And... I'm possibly going to be causing con- controversy here because I'm going to take me rose-tinted glasses off for a second and say that quite a lot of it doesn't hold up very well. I'm not surprised. I, I didn't love it when it came out. I mean, uh, when it came out, I was kind of desperate to see new Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. It, I think I think a lot of our love came from that. We hadn't seen Star Trek on the screen, so we, we accepted the, the cheapness and the shoddiness at times. Yeah. The multi-part episodes are great. Best of both worlds, uh, reunification, etc. All great stories. But with 26 episodes a season, at least 20 of them are just average th- filler material. Some of it not even average. Some of it really subpar. And some of the acting is, well, Jonathan Frakes was <laughs> quite wooden at times. Yeah, you know, I'm putting on the flame-proof vest right now and saying this. Modern Trek is so much stronger than Next Gen. Ooh. There, I've said I it. Th- I think Next Gen got better. I did. I think it improved as it went along. Yeah, it, it it definitely lifted as it got through the seasons. But even on the better seasons, there's a lot of junk in there. I, the costume designs were atrocious at times. I j- it's just hard to gel back with it without having that nostalgic rose-tinted glasses aspect. And I can understand why my daughter adamantly refuses to watch it because I'm watching it going oh yeah that's cringe oh uh, she, she'll watch lower decks with me she loves lower decks and i'll probably be able to get her interested in modern trek but i yeah. don't think classic trek and uh, next gen is going to tap with her i might retract some of this statements when i finally get around to revisiting deep space nine because yeah. that's that one good. that once it got to season three man it was it was such story building excellence but at the moment modern trek is a lot more enjoyable because it it's a lot tighter. There's less episodes. And so it's all story focused now. And that that works for me better than this episode of the week and planet of the week and monster of the week kind of approach that it used to be. We're in different times. I liked it when they did the uh, original series and they upgraded the, the effects work on it mm. and uh, made it Some feel polish on that. Yeah. 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 Anyway, moving on. I'm sure there'll be some responses to that one, Andy. I've, I've got a feeling. Your hashtag Star Trek, people are going to be jumping in on that one. I, I'm just to add in to help fill uh, the void of, of attacks. I never got on with Voyager and I never got on with Enterprise. Voyager, 
yeah, got no love for. Enterprise, again, it got to the final season and that's when it started doing what it should have done from season one. I it took too long to get good. But let's not dwell. Let's not dwell. Let's have a look at our socials challenge. Uh, last week, we set the question, if you were to be played in a biopic about your life, who would play you? And Andy, did we get get many in the way of responses? Did I did I we aim didn't. the aim the bar too high? Uh, we didn't get a huge amount of responses, but we got a handful. No, I mean, it's it started off with Mikey McFilms not actually giving us a name of anyone, but just saying someone boring, doofy, and rage filled. And what a combination! I think on that basis, they should be cast by three. A young Adam people. Sandler. There, would that would that go for it? That I could see that. Yeah, a water boy esque kind of a Adam Sandler. Aussie at Mastodon World. Thought about it and said Kevin James. Not present day Kevin James, thankfully. King of Queens era Kevin James. Big guy doing pretty well. Otherwise, generally good person. Gets frustrated and exasperated by things he cannot control. That checks out. Like it? Yeah. Stevie Dan 1969 just posted a gif of Steve Martin. And yeah. I mean, I, th I think everyone wants to be played by Steve Martin at some Especially point in their life. Steve Martin. The jerk Steve Martin in particular. Yeah. Um, Robert Clements over on Twitter. Uh, it said Emma Watson. Not not sure why. No reasoning. Just <laughs> Emma Watson. And Lazy Gaga um, said, that's easy. Rachel House. Uh, Rachel House being the New Zealand actress who was in Hunt for the Will of People and um, was also in the Thor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was in Ragnarok. Yeah. I know what you mean. Eagle versus Shark. Yeah. You'll, it's one of them that you'll recognize her when you see her. And uh, I think that's a great bit of casting choice. Patricia Meakin, my mumsy. Maureen Lipman, Reason. I think she's brilliant, funny, and can play sarcasm and is my age. If you'd, if you'd met me, Mum, you'd see exactly why she chooses okay. Maureen Lippman. I'm sure I will at some point. I believe your one is uh, Julian Sands. Yeah, back in the day, I, I did get mistaken once for Julian Sands. I, I think I recounted that story. Uh, the older <laughs> me, I was thinking about the older man. I couldn't think of an actor who could play. Because Julian Sands, as he got older, we, we stopped looking like each other. Uh, I, even though I was once compared, and I think it was a compliment, you look like an ugly Jude Law. Wow, uh, that's awesome. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't, maybe there was no compliment. But I was going to go, um, even though he's not an actor, Dave Mustaine. Um, he's not an actor, he's a, a musician, American musician. Uh, he's the member of Megadeth. In fact, he he's the front man of Megadeth. So I think kind of, kind of Dave Mustaine, I think, because of the hair. More so than anything else. Um, I said last week that obviously the easy choice for me at my current age is Brian Cranston, particularly when I've got my goatee beard and shaved head, which I was sporting well before Breaking Bad was a thing. Yeah, did. I, I can. They I stole can that, that idea off me. I have an uncanny resemblance to that character, especially since I wear the same glasses as well. But so I was asked by Stevie Dan, who would you play a younger version of you? And after a quick thought, realized that Timothy Chalamet looks like i looked like in my late oh, teen good years one. good head of brown hair and a wow. skinny wiry frame and I, I brought up some images to the, some of the guys at work and went to timothy chalamet me when i was around about 18 and these went oh yeah i can see that <laughs> there we go i'm cast i'm done yeah good <laughs> i i look forward to being in the front row when the film appears so thank you everybody for... those at the screen <laughs> 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 Don't be that harsh. It Timothy Chalamet, for goodness sake. They're going to love it. Ooh, get off. But who is this Andy Meeking guy? Why are, we, why are we watching a biopic of him? And why is Julian Sands in there? A young Julian Sands at that. Okay, so for this week's social challenge, it's Easter. 
And as you get to listen to this, it'll be quickly approaching the Easter weekend. Now, when I was a kid, there were a certain amount of films that would always pop up during that holiday. I remember Doctor Who and the Daleks, the Peter Cushing version. The film that we're going to be talking about in our deep dive was always on. But what are the films that you remember growing up that would land during the Easter holidays? Answers to us via our socials. Andy, what socials have we got? Where can they find us? You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon. You can also get in touch with us via Instagram. Or if you're listening on Spotify, the question of the week will also pop up on the show details in there. And you can respond to us via Spotify. Because you'd have also got the religious films, if you think about it as well. Yeah. All those religious movies that used to crop up on that, that you'd only ever see. religious at Easter? I remember them being on. <laughs> So they were definitely, definitely on things like, um, oh, the incredibly epic went on for, for two or three days, The Greatest Story Ever Told, which is basically yeah. Hollywood's adaptation of the Bible starring uh, John Wayne. Well, featuring John Wayne in one scene where he has the immortal line, he was truly the son of God. Uh, apologies for the impression, but it, it, it made an impact. So what films did you watch at Easter? I want to know. We want to know. And we'll tell you who else wants to know next week. And that's a great segue to telling you what's happening this week. So we've got a deep dive and we've got a deep dive this week into what I consider to be an Easter classic. No, it's not religious. It is The Great Escape. Or shall we put it this way? The Great, Great, Great Escape. We've got reviews aplenty where we both talk about Dungeons and Dragons and Andy will be talking about Tetris that was at cinemas and streaming last week and Murder Mystery 2, the Adam Sandler I'm going to say it tenuously, comedy. We've got news, we've got views, we've got the box office, and we've got the news. And that's my wrap for the week. So looking back over the last week, there was the serious problem of Shazam kind of dying at the box office very, very quickly. Rumour has it that basically Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania has now kind of wiped out. And he's not looking to do anything else until it lands on Disney+. Plus. Will it get a new appreciation there? So we've only got one big release this week, and that is Dungeons & Dragons, which I'm kind of figuring has done pretty good. Yeah, it's very much all about D&D this weekend. In the US, Dungeons & Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves opened with £37.2 knocking John Wick Chapter 4 down to second place, taking £28.3 John Wick is now on 245 million worldwide, a very strong figure to be on after only two weeks. Third place, His Only Son takes 5.5 million. Scream 6 in fourth place with 5.3 million. Creed 3 on 5 million, taking fifth place. The superhero movies are now in sixth place with Shazam and ninth place with Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Shazam barely scraping worldwide, 119 million to date which pretty much means that it's not going to make it to profit at this rate. Here in the UK, Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves takes top spots, taking 3.5 million. John Wick Chapter 4 in second place, taking another 2.6 million. Mummies, the new animation from Warners, in third place with 647,000. Shazam Fury of the Gods in fourth place with 468,000. 
and Creed 3 in fifth place with 424,000. I'm, I'm guessing with those kind of figures for Dungeons & Dragons that they are probably now, even as we speak, planning a sequel. We already reported a few months ago on how they were planning to expand the D&D franchise out into TV shows and like other side movies, etc. So they already kind of expected it to grab an audience. But I, as, a, as a nerd who used to play D&D and still does from time to time, Having something represented on screen that isn't embarrassed about what it is, is great. And, you know, hopefully this signposts a nice new wave of other things inspired by that kind of get like tabletop gaming culture that can work. Because there's so many different RPG systems out there with great storylines and great ideas that they could draw upon. But moving on to other news. Shall we start with the situation over at Disney and Marvel at the moment? Yeah, I've got a little bit of Disney news, but I'll come back to that one. So we reported last week on some of the um, job losses that are going through through Disney. Disney are wanting to reduce costs by around $5 billion per year through merging of departments, ventures and cuts to workforce. And one of the high profile jobs that has been reported this past week is Ike Perlmutter, who has been let go by the company. Well, he owned a company called Toy Biz. And when Marvel were going through a pretty tough time, he bought Marvel, saved it because it had uh, reached bankruptcy. But he was a bit of a shadowy figure. There, there are not many photographs of him. There's not much about him in the world. He was known for being a bit of a spindrift. But before we get into sort of um, the positives, because there were positives of, of what he did, he was also known for being a part of Donald Trump's kind of inner circle he donated huge amounts of, i mean the guy is a billionaire and donated huge amounts to uh, the trump presidency and was um, in charge of one of his uh, departments which to do with with uh, u.s veterans but he was always particularly uh shadowy for his spindrift elements including uh when he first started and let's remember he was one of the few people who actually believed enough to start Marvel as a studio to make their own films, but he wanted to make them cheap and fast, uh, which led to, in Iron Man 2, Terrence Howard being sacked for wanting more money and was eventually bought out when Disney paid for Marvel Studios and bought him out. But he kept running the comic book side, uh, and it was always on the cards that people were very, very unhappy with him. And he's, uh, again, always cutting budgets. He was very critical of female-led superhero movies when he was in charge of Marvel Studios. And he was very critical of anything that wasn't, shall we say, kind of very pro-conservative. But he's out of it, uh, along with Rob Steffens, co-president of Marvel Entertainment, and John Turtzin, chief counsel for the division. So recently, Ike Perlmutter tried to install an activist investor, Nelson Petz, on the board without joy before trying to get on the board himself, promising to like the cuts that was uh, that he was known for at Marvel Comics, and this is to try and get on the board at Disney. But this sort of failed coup basically left to them pushing him out a lot quicker. Now, everybody at Marvel will report straight to Kevin Feige, who's president of the Marvel Studios, and uh, also Dan Buckley. And this has been on the cards. They've wanted to get rid of him for some time. Now, he, he did do, as I said, uh, he, he did do some good things. He saved Marvel. Yep, that late 90s struggle that Marvel was going through. Yeah, it was it was on its arse. It really was. He was very frugal with his spending, which meant that he managed to turn around the financial troubles of the company once he took over. He is instrumental in the fact that we've now got Marvel films on screen. Yep. Um, it was through him set at like 
insisting on the Marvel Studios being set up to make their own films based on properties that they still owned, that we've got to the situation that we are now. Yeah, he it, it did do some positive things. Yeah, he sold it to, he sold it to Disney in 2009 for the rather small sum of $4 billion. But he's always been that controversial figure. And basically, if you're going to end up going head-to-head with Bob Iger after Bob Iger's return of recent months, then your job was going to be on the line. And he's given them every reason to finally get rid of him. The problems that he's brought to the company finally out the way. Yeah, I mean, that included the cancellation of the Fantastic Four comic and its licensing uh, and the reduction of the prominence of the X-Men due to his falling out with Fox Studios in negotiations yeah. over the film rights and over his issues with Drew Goddard, which I, I wasn't aware of and need to read more. He got rid of Marvel editor-in-chief Bob Harris and said something along the line that if his children turned out to be gay, he should kill them. And mm. he battled with Bill Jameis, who came on because of, uh, and I don't know if you ever read it, the fabulous Rawhide Kid comic, which recreated the Marvel Western character as a gay cowboy, which is a stunningly good read if you ever get a chance to do it. Uh, so there, there have been lots and lots of, of, uh, of problems. He wanted to bring in the Inhumans into the film franchise. And if you remember, that was a thing over yeah. Black Panther and Captain Marvel. Yes, a controversial figure. Did do some good, but it also, uh, he's left a lot of problems. And there were some sort of particular unpleasant elements, the one we mentioned with Bob Harris and also a lawsuit uh, that was brought against it by three female black Disney executives. Yeah, there'll be more losses in the coming weeks from Disney as they work at cutting down their outgoings each year. A lot of them will just be staffers, uh, but at the moment they're working through the management structure. Marvel Entertainment, which was what Perlmutter was in charge of, has now been basically abandoned. Marvel Studios is its own separate entity, so don't start thinking that this means that the films are going to stop. It's not impacted on them. It's It was basically the merchandise and the comics kind of brand, which is now going to merge with Disney Entertainment One, which does the same job anyway for the rest of their films. So it's kind of like going, we've got these sections of our company that do exactly the same. Let's bung them all together. It gave them the excuse to get rid of a problem element. Yeah, it's not really going to change much at Marvel from, from our point of view no. right now. Certainly not the comics. The comics uh, can breathe a sigh of relief because I think if... Yeah. If they do things right, it will give them a little bit more uh, creative freedoms that they didn't have. And the cost cutting, which I, I, I know a couple of people who've worked for Marvel in the past said were pretty terrible uh, and pretty draconian. So uh, I don't think we will actually notice much. It's always going to be higher up and further up than, than the lofty heights than we're allowed to look up to. While we're on the subject of Disney and Marvel, um, some there's a, a lot of little bits of news to do with Disney and Marvel films that are being greenlit. The Aristocats has okay. now got Oscar-winning Summer of Soul filmmaker and Roots drummer Amir Questlove Thompson set to direct the live-action version. By live-action, we mean CGI cats in a live-action environment version of the film. It was only a matter of time before the Aristocats would be on the card for which one of Dis- which one of Disney's old properties haven't they made yet as a new version? Uh, much like Sonic the Hedgehog, this adaptation will blend live action CGI elements. Thompson is also executive producing, whilst Will Gluck, who gave us Peter Rabbit, and Keith Boonin, who gave us Onward, are adapting the screenplay. The story, for those who don't remember the Arist- Aristocats, because it's it's not one of the ones that everyone's kind of gravitated around. I loved it when I saw it as a kid. Yeah, I, I remember this as, you know, we're talking about the other week, things that we saw when we were kids. Uh, I remember this quite so clearly. It, it's not a, a classic. It is kind of Lady in the no. Tramp with, with cats. 
Yeah. Centres on a family of pampered cats, Mother Duchess and her three kittens, who live in Paris and are expecting to inherit a massive fortune. But their owner's jealous butler learns of their inheritance and kidnaps the cats, who are forced to team up with the smooth-talking alley cats to reclaim their riches. What you remember most about this film is the cool music. Yeah, even though there's one kind of song which I don't think we'll, we'll kind of make this time, <laughs> which is the Two Siamese Cats song. Yeah, um, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure that might change. But, you know, Questlove has that musical background, and I think it's a good choice. I'm interested simply because of the names involved. And I would like, I feel like watching Aristocats again now because I've just got um, everybody wants to be a cat. Yeah, it was very, Going very my head. jazzy. Very jazzy. <laughs> yeah. Well, staying with Disney, we know that there is a Lilo and Stitch live action movie in development right now. Anyway, we know that Disney have been searching Hawaii for a young actress to bring the iconic character to life in the film. And it looks like they finally found their cast. And it is Mia Keola who is an Hawaiian, uh, young Hawaiian actress, and we still have our, um, we're still kind of looking to see where Lilo and Stitch is going to go as a as a live action movie. Yeah, I was never a big fan of Lilo and Stitch. No, nah, me neither. If I had been younger when it came out, it probably would have latched a bit better onto me. But as it stood, it's one of them that just kind of like flew up under my radar. I did watch it when it came out, but I just didn't gel with it. Would it be interested in a live action one? I'll give it a shot. Yeah, we'll probably see it. I know that there's a lot of love out there for Lilo and Stitch. I know there's a huge fan base for it. So um, it, it, I think it's good casting. And um, let's just see how it goes. Marvel news. So Fantastic Four now has a writer to tackle the script, Josh Friedman, who um, was responsible for the script for Avatar Way of Water. There was a script. And uh, Spielberg's War of the Worlds. Oh, yeah, there was a script on that. Um, is going to be tackling it. He also worked recently on Lock and Key on Netflix and the excellent Snowpiercer TV series. So this guy has writing credits that are worthy. We know that after John Watts walked away from the project that Matt Shackman, who had helped bring us Division, is director on the project. I like Josh Friedman. If you ever get a chance to hear him being interviewed, he's so self-deprecating. Uh, and he's always talking about the problems he has because he's been kicked off more projects than he's, he's been allowed on because he's so passionate about his works, including Snowpiercer. His original script for Snowpiercer was very different take than the series that we've got, as was his uh, original script for War of the Worlds. But he, yeah, he's an interesting writer, very, very passionate. He also created, I don't know, if, do you remember this, the, the Terminator TV series? Yes, uh, the Chronicle Chronicles, marvellous. Yeah. Two seasons of absolute genius that was the best Terminator since Terminator 2 and hasn't been yeah. beaten. That was him. I just about remember it. <laughs> I recommend it to everyone. Whenever people say there was nothing good after Terminator 2, it's like Sarah Connor Chronicles, get on that. There was only two seasons, <laughs> but it was absolute quality. Moving on to more quick Marvel news, Secret Invasion. There's been a lot of small Marvel news this week. Yeah, nothing nothing major apart from the iPad Middler story. Amelia Clark is going to be playing Talos's Skrull daughter, GR, who's part of the radicalised oh. group of Skrulls led by Ben Kingsley Adair's Gravik. These are the ones who are going to be causing the problems which are leading to scrolls infiltrating humanity. Olivia Coleman was is portraying antagonistic MI6 agent. Sam Jackson has described her as somebody you've never seen her playing before, cold-blooded and relishes being that person. Kobe Smulders returns as Maria Hill, and she says not to expect MCU hero superpower cameos, as it's trying to keep it to the political espionage kind of aspect. So the grounded and tech heroes of like Don Cheadle's War Machine, Martin Freeman, Sam Jackson, etc., will be involved 
but all your big capes and costumes won't. And we've got a launch date, which is Disney Plus, June the 21st. And by the time you have listened to this show, from our time recording it, there will be another full trailer. Ed Harris has been cast as Neil Sarian in Wonder Man TV series. Uh, he's the talent agent of Simon Williams, who's going to be played by the ever-excellent Yaha Abdul-Mateen II. Ben Kingsley, as we know, is returning as Trevor Slattery. And Demetrius Gross is going to play Eric Williams, a.k.a. Grim Reaper. Over in Deadpool 3, which they've confirmed will be going for a mature approach, Karen Sony and Leslie Uggams are going to return as Dupinda, the taxi driver, and Blind Al. Uh, the film, like I say, is going to be R-rated and will be coming out in November 2024. And also aiming for a mature audience, we've had it confirmed that Daredevil Born Again is going to try to stay as close to the tone of the Netflix series as it could be. Vincent D'Onofrio, in an interview this week, has said, it was a concern of mine too because the Netflix show was so raw and brutal, you know. But then I started to look at what Marvel's been doing lately with their series and the direction that they want to go in. And all I can say is that if you look at the most brutal stuff that Marvel is doing, which is few and far between, but it's there, it will be there for us too. Looking forward to that, of course. I'm massive, massive Daredevil out of every comic book character. And we also know, and we mentioned it on the show, that John Bernthal is returning to play The Punisher and he started his training for it this very week. Our last bit of Marvel news-ish over at Sony, we are waiting with anticipation for Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. But there has been a rumour, and whether it's true or not, that from several different sources, that the second Across the Spider-Verse trailer will feature Spider-Man No Way Home stars Tom Holland, Tobey Maguire, and Andrew Garfield. We shall see. There's a lot of rumour and speculation as to who they're going to be throwing in as addition, because the potential for these uh, this two-parter of the Spider-Verse upcoming films gives them the option to throw anything, because every aspect of the Spider-Verse can be thrown in. Let's see. It's all exciting. What's not? As exciting at the moment is DC because there's not a lot going on over there except for a film flopping. But it hasn't stopped people with their random speculation and rumours that James Gunn, as ever, has been swift to debunk, including notorious scooper who often makes spurious claims that her insiders <laughs> have exclusive news, Grace Randolph, who not only scooped the news that Logan Lerman has is close to being cast for Superman Legacy and had right. James Gunn take to Twitter to debunk her, saying, not true, haven't had a single talk with a single actor about the role, I'm just making private lists, prepping material for auditions. She then doubled down on reports, because, you know, why should she pay attention to the actual director and writer why and indeed? head honcho? Why? Saying that she hears that Percy Jackson and Hunter star Logan Lerman was Gunn's top choice for Superman. Gunn then instantly shot that down, saying, for the record, I don't know who that is. <laughs> Now, Logan Lerman fans out there got a bit upset at this. Because they do. He had to explain. He's like, he doesn't know a lot of actors' names. Now that you tell me who he is, I recognise him from stuff, and I think he's talented. But I've never met him, and he's never been part of a conversation about playing Superman. It's certainly not any fault on the part of the actor if I don't know their name. And it's the same with all of us. Yeah. You know, sometimes we will recognise someone by face that we've seen. But if you say the name to me, you'll, you'll get a blank look of going, who are they? Oh, they were in that. Oh, yeah, I know now. Logan Lerman, I think he'd make a great Superman for a younger Yeah, Superman. he was great in Love and Monsters. Yeah, but there's no casting at the moment. So pay no attention to the scoop. The only account you need to follow on Twitter and social media to ours. keep up to what's happening with DC oh, okay. is obviously ours. Um, to, keep up, to keep up directly with the DC news is James Gunn's. Because any time that false news come out, he's quick to debunk it publicly. 
if he doesn't debunk it, then it's a possibility. Yeah, there was a rumour doing the rounds this week that the Justice League film, which no one's announced yet, uh, was going to be based on the New Frontiers, the fabulous Dwayne Cook story that came out. Probably a lot longer than I care to remember and thinking it was only happened a couple of years ago. But that's age for you. And again, I've not seen anything anywhere else that makes me think that that, that that's the thing. So just rumours until we just get rumors. it from literally the horse's mouth. Uh, Jason Momoa is also pretty convinced that he's going to have a future with the new DCU. He said in a recent interview, Peter Safran's my producer on Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, and he's a dear friend. I absolutely think Aquaman will be involved in the DCU. It's on, bro. There's no one bigger than Aquaman. I, I, it it kind of makes sense. If this second Aquaman film is as successful as the first one, why would they want to get rid of the only films that have passed a billion? And also, he's a very popular character, which is bizarre, given that he's not really a very popular character in the comics, but he's adapted to a general audience fantastically. It's also worth noting that the Aquaman movie comes out after the reboot film of The Flash, which would suggest that they've already considered that this is still going to be part of the DCU. We won't know until all the dust settles. And once the dust settles after Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom comes out, there'll then still be another year before DC returns to the big screen with the 2025 release of Superman Legacy. More news to come within the year, I reckon, on this one. Mm. Now, sticking with uh, comic book adaptations, okay. and one of the most underappreciated and underwatched comic book adaptations of the past couple of decades was oh. 2010's Scott Pilgrim movie from Edgar Wright. We revealed last year that there was rumblings of news that there was going to be a Netflix animated series adapting the, the comic book graphic novels. Those who've read the graphic novels know that the film is fantastic. The film is such a joy, but there's so much more in the multiple volumes of the graphic novels that they could tap into. And so I got very excited. And then this week I exploded with delight because not only are the vol six volumes which were released from 2004 to 2010 by Brian Lee O'Malley getting adapted to animated form, but all of the cast of the Scott Pilgrim versus the World film are reprising their roles to voice the characters in the animated series version. So Michael Sarah is going to return as Scott Pilgrim. Mary Elizabeth Winstred is reprising her role as Ramona Flowers. Kieran Culkin, Chris Evans, Anna Kendrick, Brie Larson, Alison Pill, Aubrey Plaza, Brandon Ruth, Jason Schwartzman, Johnny Simmons, Saita Baba, Mark Webber, Mae Whitman and Ellen Wong all returning with O'Malley serving as showrunner and writer Ben David Grabinski working alongside him. I'm there. Yeah, I'll be I am there. Talking of which, have you seen uh, um, the animated... Agent Elvis on uh, on Netflix. I've caught the first episode so far. It's, okay. it's, quite, it's fun. quite fun. <laughs> I'm going to stick with Netflix and I'm going to stick with comic book adaptations on the channel. So for all the success of the Umbrella Academy, we had Mark Millar's Jupiter Legacy, which basically lasted one season. And if legend has it, was cancelled by the company by episode three. Anyway, he has got a new adaptation. Mark Millar is the the lord of self-promotion. He just does it so well. You'll know his other work if you're not a comic book geek from uh, Matthew Vaughan's kick-ass uh, adaptation of his work, uh, which I have a very fond spot for the first film, not so much the second. And Mark Millar's so-called Miller World was supposed to become the streaming giant's big comic book take. Anyway, it, it, it didn't happen after Jupiter Legacy uh, passed away. But his next adaptation is a fresh take 
on his 2004 comic, which he co-created with artist Peter Gross, and that is uh, American Jesus, or it's going to be titled on the show as The Chosen One. Now, a poster landed this week, and for the Netflix version, the story is being switched to Mexico from the US. Relocating it, according to Millar, is about the mythological reasons and the authenticity of the apocalypse. I read the book. It was a, it was a good book. Mm. And um, it suffered from all the things, the knowingness that Mark Millar puts in all his work. And there's always a bit of a streak of, of nasty, uh, which always comes across a sort of mean edge. But uh, I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested in seeing where this goes. And that's the chosen one. And that's landing at Netflix sometime soon. A couple of quick bits of news to wrap up. So first of all, Paramount Plus has officially ordered another Star Trek TV series. This one's set at Starfleet Academy. Been mentioned for years, hasn't it? A Star, uh, Starfleet Academy series. That's what the first Star Trek movie was going to be. Yeah, the early years of Kirk and Spock. We don't know what era they're going to be setting it in of the Star Trek landscape. There's hints that it's going to be set after Discovery. There's also other hints saying it's going to be next-gen timeline. We won't know for definite. It's very ambiguous at the moment, but it's a new series. Avatar news. So Avatar 3, there's a report that James Cameron presented the studio a nine-hour cut of the third film. Of course he did. It's James Cameron, after all. Obviously, we're not going to get a nine-hour cut at their release at the cinema because that would be like one show per screen per day. But the craziest news on this is that there's the idea that Cameron is going to do all the visual effects for the nine-hour cut. What? Madness, I tell you. Even though the cut that goes to the cinema will probably be about three and a half hours, four hours maximum. And then they'll edit the nine-hour version out into episodic chunks as a TV series after the theatrical cut has already been released for extra content on Disney Plus sometime after the film finishes raking in 2.7 billion or whatever at the box office. I've not seen any evidence that certifies that this is going to be happening. It's all speculation that has come from insiders at the moment. So take it with a huge pinch of salt. Um, Exorcist, we've revealed a couple of elements of Exorcist. Uh, what we now know as well is that Linda Blair is reportedly going to reprise her role as Regan in the new David Gordon Green upcoming direct sequel which is due out this October. Shall we mention the X-Files news? That sounds pretty exciting. Exciting. Uh, yes. Black did. Panther and Creed director Ryan Coogler is reportedly developing a new version of Fox's X-Files sci-fi series. I, I, I've heard they're going to make it more diverse, which is, which is good. I'm also uh, intrigued because Chris Carter, who did a phenomenal job, and if you've not seen the X-Files, you need to. It's currently on Disney Plus. And the first few seasons, and yeah, the majority of the seasons were pretty good. And then they made uh, a couple of movies and then an ill-advised return to the X-Files, which didn't really, didn't really deliver as well as it should. But I am looking forward yeah. to it. Uh, um, Ryan Coogler's involved and uh, I'm in on, on both of those things. Yep. And uh, I'm definitely in for Asteroid City. The trailer landed this week. Yeah, I, I, it just is Wes Anderson. At its most Wes Anderson, and I said that last time the last Wes Anderson film came out, uh, and it looks it looks pure joy. All the cast that we see in that, and once again, there's still no sign of uh, Bill Murray. He'll be in there somewhere. There. He's got to be. It can't be a Wes Anderson. He's, he's probably just got to walk on one scene, one shot thing. But when this was originally announced and Tom Hanks was going to be working with it, it like it was reported that Tom Hanks was only going to be a quick cameo. But it looks like he's that, that's not the case because it looks like he's quite integral to whatever's going on within that film. Can't wait. 
Can't wait. It's got a film of the year. I'm saying it now. It's a film of the year. Calling it. And, and finally, there is an up sequel of sorts. Oh, it's a short film that's going to go out with the new Pixar movie, Elemental, and it's called Carl's Date. And the film reportedly follows Carl, Doug, and a new companion as they go on their own adventure. And it stands as a tribute to the late, great Ed Asner, who voiced Carl yeah. and who passed away in 2021. Yeah, it was intended as one of the Doug Days animated series, but they've decided as a tribute for Ed Asner, they're going to give it the cinematic polish and put it out there before Elementals. Final bit of news. Normally, normally we talk about bad news at this point, but let's just uh, give a big thumbs up and a big congratulations to Jeremy Renner, whose re oh, rehabilitation yeah, yeah. after his accident is coming along really well. He's been sharing his updates on Instagram. And he's posted a video to his Instagram, which sees him using an anti-gravity treadmill that takes part of his body weight off as his legs start to recover. He confirms that he's doing all of the walking motion himself. The post caption says, now is the time for my body to rest and recover. As we know, he was hospitalized for blunt chest trauma and orthopedic injuries after the snow-capped plow ran over him um, near his home earlier this year. But it's great to see that he's solidly on the mend, building up his energy, and he's keeping his positive spirit this guy is a gem. I saw extracts from the interview that he did, and uh, we, we can do nothing more than wish him well and look forward to him returning to the screens. And that, folks, that's the news for this week. So, Andy, are you, are you enjoying the show? I think I am, yes. I think so. You know, there are people out there who enjoy the show but haven't subscribed. Fools, crazy fools. Why, why are you not subscribing? If you're enjoying it so much, you don't want to miss the next episode. You don't want to accidentally forget about it because we all get distracted with everyday life. Right? I'm distracted right now. It's every now and then, like, I'll suddenly realise, oh, I've not watched that TV episode that I really was looking forward to because life gets in the way. So if you subscribe, whichever podcast service you choose to click that like, subscribe, and leave a review for, will then prompt you each week with a little alert to say, there's a new episode out. You want to listen to this, don't you? And I hope they'll enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy doing it. Because if they did, they'd really, really enjoy it. So get on board. Uh, subscribe to The Film File. Remember to leave us a like. You can find us all over the place. And get in touch with the show, which you can do at... Um, over on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon. Search for Film File UK. You will find us. So try on it, any social media platforms. I've possibly set up an account that I've forgotten about. If you find us on something and it looks like I don't interact on there, send us a message on one of the other things and remind me that I've set up this account. Um, or you can get in touch with us directly via email, podcast at filmfile.uk. Anything that you want to talk about, anything, thoughts, suggestions, just get in touch. We love to hear from you. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. As we head into Easter, this was a film that, well, it was always on every Easter. And that is the 1963 American War Adventure film with an all-star cast, which included James Garner, Richard Attenborough, Charles Bronson, Donald Pleasance, James Coburn, David McCallum, and of course, Steve McQueen. Yep, we're talking about The Great Escape. Bartlett, Big X, the prime mover behind this true, incredible story. He held their lives in the palm of his hand. Ramsey, the planner, ready to take the rap for every man in the camp. Danny, the tunnel king. He dug 16 escape tunnels in 16 different prisons. And the Germans still have him. 
Sedgwick, the manufacturer, he can make anything out of anything else and make it work. These were the reckless, defiant men. These men plotted, these men dared, these men lived the great escape. It starts with one of the greatest soundtrack themes that you'll probably ever hear. And it tells the story of a true life account of a mass escape by British Commonwealth prisoners during the war from a German POW camp, Stalag Luft III, in the Nazi Germany province of Lower Silesia. The film depicts a heavily, a heavily fictionalized version of the escape uh, with numerous compromises for its, shall we say, commercial appeal. Directed by John Sturgis, The Great Escape emerged as one of the highest grossing films of 1963, and it won Steve McQueen the award for Best Actor at the Moscow International Film Festival. And this film, in its true sense, is considered a classic. Andy, did you watch this at Easter? Because that's where I remember seeing it. It's a bank holiday film. Yeah, this is one of those films that it seemed to be the staple of British TV viewing every year. And all of us would return to school after Easter and talk about The Great Escape. And we talk about who our favourite characters within it, because some people love Steve McQueen's Captain Virgil, the cooler king. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's got that irreverent attitude. Me, I, I was James Garner's uh, flight lieutenant, Bob Hendley, the scrounger. He was my character. He was the person who I loved. For me, it was David McCallum, because I was a Man From U.N.C.L.E. fan as uh, Lieutenant Commander Eric Ashley Pitt, also known as Dispersal. He was the officer who finds ingenious ways to get rid of the dirt being brought up from the tunnels. The cast are so great and each of the personalities are so different. Like you say, it was a heavily fictionalised version of real events. They took aspects of the real people involved in the escape, but then created these kind of caricatures to cover each of the different aspects of the escape and give them their nicknames of like Big X, Scrounger, um, the SBO, Tunnel King, The Forger, etc. I mean, Donald Pleasance is The Forger. Marvellous bit of casting. Yeah. But it, it's one of those films that, as a kid, you identify aspects of different characters and you all have different favourites. And like I say, I used to watch it every year as a child, but then stopped watching it. And then it took about a decade, a decade and a half before I went back and rewatched it. And my eyes were awoken as an adult as to how bloody good this film actually is. It is. He does it in a very British voice because all of a sudden I'm part of the camp with those imprisoned officers wanting to escape and get all the good people out and back to Blighty. It is, it is a marvellous <laughs> film uh, and it is one of those rip-roaring films. Now, of, of course, everybody is going to remember uh, Steve McQueen. He's, he's, he is the standout, even though he's not in it for that long. Uh, mm. And he plays, uh, he plays the Cooler King, one of three Americans in the camp. And the, the film does have a tendency uh, where it becomes elements of being fictionalized to really push the American element in this. But of course, it's not a documentary. It helps sell it. It, it. Yeah, yeah, it helps, helps sell the movie. You know, you've got Garner, uh, James Garner, as you mentioned, McQueen, James Coburn, uh, Charles Bronson. And we know that the, the Cooler King was based on at least three pilots uh, from that uh, particular time. But it doesn't matter because you've also got people like Sir Richard Attenborough, who was based on a, a true life character of, of Roger Bushell, who masterminded the real Great Escape. This film is a film of its time, but it, it's it's just, a, and I'm going to use the word jolly. It's a jolly good romp. 
and uh, thoroughly enjoyable. The bike sequence is, yes, still stunning. The uh, the twist with Gordon Jackson still hits hard. The fact, spoilers, that not everybody makes it is quite shocking, really, to say there's this, this almost uh, downbeat element to the film. Mm. But it just is a film about the human condition and the need to to succeed and i think that's why especially in england we've embraced this probably much more so than the americans have of course the theme tune got picked up by the uh, uh english national football team and it has uh it was also sadly picked up by an openly criticized for the use of the great escape theme by the vote leave campaign during the uk brexit referendum but there, there is a there's a bit of stiff upper lip and a bit of british ingenuity that makes this film beloved especially in the uk it's interesting that i remember reading the the famous bike scene with the attempt to leap over the fences it's still not certain who actually performed that one because apparently steve mcqueen had done the thing for fun while they were setting up shots and some of that was recorded and there was also bud ekins uh it was a stuntman wasn't he he was bud having a, he was having a go he, he was a good friend and fellow cycle enthusiastic um, he was having a go, and then the actual stuntman did it during shooting, but they're still not sure which version of it actually ended up into the final cut. And because it's a long-distance shot, there's no not enough detail to be able to go, that's McQueen, or that's Ekins, or that's like the, the proper stuntman doing it. McQueen has been asked in interviews like about doing the stunts, and he's, he always insisted that it wasn't him that you saw in there, but he did do it, so it might have been interesting. It's also... When I rewatched this this week, I'd forgotten that this is close to three hours in runtime, 172 yes. minutes, and yet it doesn't feel like it. So in this day and age, I mean, we're getting people at the moment who are moaning when a film is over two hours long, as though it's a, only a new thing that films are going two hours 20. But all of these greats that we're covering as deep dives were generally over two and a half hours long, close to three hours, yeah. sometimes past it. And it's how they use that time that makes it, because not one moment in this film feels like it could be cut and dispersed of everything builds everything grows every scene every shot is there for a reason to move the narrative along of the escape before you get to the final act with the actual escape itself and the very dark resolution because up until the final act it's quite light yeah it's uh, some of it's not not i would say it's played for laughs but it is played for its uh played for its lightness in places and and again, it's it, it's certainly a film of two halves, to quote a football term. You know, you've yeah. got the slow build of them planning uh, and deciding to it. And then you've got the section of the film when they, they've made the escape. There's a midpoint of the film where even like the somewhat jokey characters like Angus Lenny's um, Archie Ives, the mole, who is quite played for comedy at the start of it. But then you discover that he's got this uh, paranoia that has come from being, you know, he's been locked away in the hole so many times that he's now ready to break down. And his character turns then to be something different. All the characters get a point at which their characters' personalities are forced to change as the escape gets closer. Donald Pleasance's The Forger loses his eyesight and it suddenly yes. turns his whole character from like being one kind of play to another. And that's one thing that I really love about it because it, it really captures this element of like these people have been incarcerated in concentration camps for so many years in different camps, different camps, different camps that they are breaking and they are no longer the people that they were. And it only takes people like Richard Attenborough's uh, Big X to maintain that kind of semblance of order amongst the, the men who are falling apart. It truly is a great film that is not only joyous and fun, but also depicts the real horrors of war 
but in a non-brutal and bloody way. It shows the psychological horror of war in such a clever and creative way. Yeah, it's it. You're right. It shows those. Uh, it demonstrates there are moments of of tragedy uh, and uh, that death is looming for a lot of these characters. But and I think this is the reason, especially why it's resonated in the UK, probably more so than than in the US. Even though it was a huge success, grossing at 11.7 million at the box office of a budget of 4 million, it is one of the highest grossing films of the year. It came out in 1963. It has this enduring, unbreakable spirit for those guys who were imprisoned and the ingenuity that they applied, the idea of, of trying to beat the odds that pulls people together. And it never, even though it's set in, in, in Germany uh, at a terrible time in our history, there is no sort of sermonizing about mm. it. There's no soul searching in it. It's, it's a piece of escapism based on a true life story. In, interesting enough, as a bit of a side note, I didn't realize that uh, until I was doing the research for this particular episode that there had been a TV version of it made way, way back in the 1950s as part of a, a live television adaptation as part of what was known as the Philco Television Playhouse back in 1951. The live broadcast was praised for engineering an ingenious bit of set design for live TV. Uh, the idea of creating tunnels and the film screenplay was adapted by James Clavell, the famous writer, Walter Newman and W.R. Burnett. And that played a huge part of, of selling it on to the studio. And it left us with a film that is is deeply, deeply loved. Yes, three hours long is a lot of running time. But if you've never seen it, then it, it plays in beautifully. Yes, while it does come off as a bit of a romp, it does have... It justifies what the guys did, and and as I said, it doesn't sermonise. This was a, a, a terrible part of history. It was interesting looking at some of the reviews from the time that it came out. Uh, whilst it was generally warmly embraced, uh, there was people like there were some reviews that said that it was a bit overlong, artful, and essential. But my favourite one, and it shows that this was a, the changing era of Hollywood, that as there was a lot of move from black and white to colour, and it was a review in Time magazine that the yes. reviewer started off with. The use of colour photography is unnecessary and jarring. It's like, wow. <laughs> I know, who'd have said? I mean, and that's the world, that, that's the difference of the world that we live in now compared to then, that you wouldn't say that like use of colour photography is unnecessary and jarring. If, something, if this was remade now as black and white, you'd do the flip and go, not sure why they made it in black and white, but what a, what a strange reflection of the times that it was. Great Escape is one of those films that regularly makes the top 10 films of all time. It regularly hits like all critics' lists of films that you should seek out. If you've never sought it out, seek it out. Indeed, there's a, there's a homage to it in in the fabulous uh, film Chicken Run. Uh, <laughs> there was a sequel of sorts, The Great Escape to the Untold Story, which was a, a made-for-TV film uh, released in 1988 with Christopher Reeve in the leading role. Uh, the film's not not a true sequel as such, but it dramatizes the escape itself just as the original film does, although mostly using uh, the real names of the characters who were, who were influenced influencers for, for the yeah. finished film. Um, if you haven't seen it, Andy, where can you find The Great Escape? Uh, it's not available for free at the moment, but you can rent it on any services out there, or you can buy yourself the lovely uh, DVD or Blu-ray, which are available at retail. But... Keep an eye out in the in the radio times or the TV times or whatever <laughs> TV guide, because no doubt over this next week or so, 
this will pop up one afternoon, probably a Sunday afternoon, about two o'clock, because that's usually the time that we used to sit down to watch it. Yeah, and, and tune in. You'll you'll definitely thank us for it. And that's it for this week's deep dive, and we'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for the reviews. So for the reviews this week, shall we start, Andy, with a film that we've seen together, or shall we build to it? And you go through some of the other movies that you've seen beforehand. Well, let me roll a dice to work out what we're going to do. Is it a 20-sided dice, as I discovered this week? Is a thing? The 20-sided dice, we've rolled a natural 20. So let's just hit straight in with Dungeons & Dragons. Honour Among Thieves. On March 31st, we didn't mean to unleash the greatest evil the world has ever known. But we're going to fix it. What is that again? It's an owl there. A new team of heroes. Found a new death. Did he eat the last one? Dungeons and Dragons. He missed. That's not good. Only in theaters, March 31st. So, Andy and I both got to see Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves. Uh, and if you've not seen it, well, we'll give you some pretty good reasons why you should. The story is as such. After being imprisoned for a crime, they kind of committed. <laughs> Best buddies, Edgin, played with so much charm by Chris Pine that it makes me want him to replay Captain Kirk all over again. And Holger, played by Michelle Rodriguez, who steals every scene that she's in. They break out and unsuccessfully try to recover Edgin's daughter and their stolen treasure from an old ally who's now turned enemy forge played by hugh grant who doesn't just steal every scene that he's in doesn't just chomp the scenery he devours it and the curtains too they plan another heist but there are dark forces at play as well i've put in my my notes that hugh grant is clearly trying to destroy Neverwinter by way of eating all the scenery around him. <laughs> He's having the best of times <laughs> making this film. The film's brought to us by Games Night, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, who also brought us uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, and they establish pretty early on the love they have for the game. Yeah. And while it's not consistently hilarious, this film is consistently fun. Um, this isn't the first time that Dungeons and Dragons has made it to the big screen. Back in 2000, there was the film that had Jeremy Irons in the bad guy role. Again, chewing scenery and eating the monsters around him. But that film didn't work at all because it felt like it was embarrassed of what it was. And so it didn't draw from the D&D lore as much as this one does. It, it was like it, it just became a generic action-adventure film and not a good one as a result because it was floundering to just try to be something that it shouldn't have been. Whereas this one, Daly and Goldstein, clearly, as they showed in Game Night, no tabletop gaming. And they knew what fans of D&D would like. But whilst this film is packed with Easter eggs after Easter eggs after Easter eggs, treasure chests of Easter eggs, it doesn't get in the way of it just being an enjoyable film for a general audience who maybe don't know what a D20 or a D8 or a D4 or a D6 are and just want a bit of fun, family-friendly nonsense. But what I love about it is that it does that in a way that has every aspect of D&D lore that you would think is a bit too silly. Owlbears, I had never thought I would see on screen, but I have now seen an owlbear, owlbear fight. It's great. <laughs> just because just you've played the games and I, I have very little knowledge of the of that world at all there were some sort of pop-up characters like the cat-headed people 
that sort of turn up and there was the the sort of the walking brains that that took your intelligence <laughs> yeah. and little little creatures that i'm so i'm thinking those are easter eggs for the fans yeah yes uh, but the way that they use them is it's just done as part of this environment that they were working so it's not done in a way that you go, well, I need to know more about that. It's done as like, a, oh, we just accept this because this is that kind of fantasy setting. Yeah, uh, as soon as I saw those walking brains, I was like, yeah. Uh, but I, I was the same when the trailer came out, when I, I was like Red Wizards of Thayer in there. As a fan of the lore of it, a fan of the Forgotten Realms lore, there's so many names, drops, references, just a quick reference to like towns and cities, etc. Like, we'll, we'll catch a boat from Baldur's Gate. Made me go, hey, Baldur's Gate. As a fan of it, this makes it more than just the enjoyable fun film that it was it was something more than that for me i mean there were plenty of dungeons and there were plenty of dragons in it and there's also i guess an initial worry that it was going to go down the 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 worry of being a john carter type thing and what i mean by that is that all the influences that you you had in john carter had been mm. played out through through other franchises you know namely star wars but this um this managed to take that kind of a world this sort of fantasy world that we've seen so many times recently and do something fresh with it and i thought what it did is it sort of marvelized it uh, in a way that marvel did something something like guardians of the galaxy and even thor ragnarok uh, and tried to do something that was self-contained and self-deprecating at the same time and and have fun with it and having this sort of uh, fizzy banter that went off all the way through in the same way that that guardians did uh, and to some extent, this was the film that, while it's knowing and occasionally winks to the camera, it did it in a way that it wasn't smug in the way Thor Love and Thunder was smug. Mm. Thor Love and Thunder knew it was being cute and funny and overstayed its jokes. This felt like a, an, an absolute breeze that everyone was having a, a good time. There were real flashes of some sharp and charming silliness to it that especially i'm mean, especially the reanimated corpse sequence which which had me <laughs> had me giggling along so yeah you could say this was a kind of a a marvelization of it but it never felt as though inevitably it was it it knew itself and knew its own silliness in, in a way that that i said looking at youth all of and thunder you didn't you took it far too far great cast i thought as i said uh chris pine makes me long to see him back as captain kirk pine and rodriguez worked so well together yeah I, they have a really strong and platonic relationship yeah justice smith as simon was a was a joy but for me so sophia lillis as the tiefling druid doric she stole the, the highlights of the film uh, for those who were, were sat through the film thinking we've ever seen her before she was in it. Yes, of course she was. Yes. Uh, she um, was... Um, Reggie Jane Page as Paladin was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was a delight uh, of that sort of knowingness hero of uh, that everybody, usually in any other film, would be the lead character. <laughs> it, it was just a good chemistry between all of the cast, and they all worked well. And Hugh Grant clearly having fun. And I'm loving this renaissance of Hugh Grant over recent years where he's playing yeah. characters very different to what he was normally known for playing. Because he was always that like bumbling, like stumbling Englishman. Now he's just having fun. And boy, yeah, yeah. I want him to have more and more fun like this. I'm happy with his, this kind of fun. The, the film's not afraid of its own ridiculousness. It has an emotional core to it, which plays out wonderfully in the very last act. It's ridiculously entertaining. That's mm -hmm. if you want to talk about ridiculousness, it's ridiculously entertaining. 
they know how to mix the high elements of the fantasy with a charm and elements of, of comedy to it. And um, I had a good time with it. Didn't have a great time. I thought it slightly was too long, but I went along with it. I, I never fell out of what I was watching. Yeah. Okay, so that's Dungeons & Dragons, which you can find at the cinemas right now. Andy, what else have you had a chance to see this week? So, landed on Apple TV Plus and is also on limited cinema release, and that's Tetris, brought to the screen by John S. Bird. I played Tetris for five minutes. I still see falling blocks in my dreams. It's called the Game Boy. Package it with Tetris. Can you get us the rights? I'm going to go to Moscow. Nothing gets out easily. You want to play with the big boys? Soviet Union is about to implode. This is insane. Go home! The cavalry is coming. We don't have time. I have a plan. Tetris. Tetris, brought to the screen by John S. Bird, who gave us films such as Filth and Stan and Ollie, is the story of how Hank Rogers risked everything to secure the rights to the Russian hit game Tetris, which was created by Alexei Pajidnov. Sounding like a simple tale, the true story it's drawn from is a complicated affair with rights issues seemingly sold to multiple parties, one of which Robert Maxwell's Mirosoft, corporate corruption and Soviet Cold War threat and control, adding to what should have been a simple task. The film does a sharp job of covering all the facts, albeit with a fair dollop of embellishment, as we've come to expect from any biopics these days. In the lead role of Henk, is the modern-day king of biopics, Taron Egerton, who once more completely loses himself into the part, being almost totally unrecognisable, such as he's done previously with Eddie the Eagle and, of course, Rocketman. Around him, names such as Toby Jones, Roger Allen and Ben Niles lend some solid turns, even if the Maxwell role by Allen does become a tad cartoonish at times, and the film is directed with a slick quality and a pixel art chapter break and segues that ground the feel and the tone of the film, as well as the some fun usage of the pixel art aspect during a fictional car chase moment that never actually took place in real life. And maybe adding the pixel elements was a sly way to cue the audience that that particular moment was more a flight of fantasy. All of these designs around it fit the theme of the story. Tetris is engaging, it's entertaining, and it's a fascinating glimpse of the mostly true story, with a charming cast and a solid 80s vibe to it, right down to the music choices scattered throughout. Yeah, I'd meant to see this due to everybody being absolutely shattered over the weekend. We never got around to it, but uh, yes, uh, high on my list. Um... To I'll probably get to watch it tonight, in fact. Excellent. And finally, a film I have no interest in seeing, and you've done the Lord's work. You've bitten the bullet. You've seen an Adam Sandler movie. In fact, not just an Adam Sandler movie, a sequel to another Adam Sandler movie. Yes, Netflix landed this past week, Murder Mystery 2. Okay. Have you ever seen anything like this? A gift box. Earrings? An iPhone. Those are going to get you in trouble. You promise? Oh. How handsome are you, man? I only have eyes for you. Oh. And now it's time for Blue. the Maharaja. This is a distraction. From what? From the escape. The Maharaja's been kidnapped. And all of you are suspects. We're not going to be invited anywhere ever again. 
The first murder mystery was a cliched attempt at a comedy whodunit, which failed as a whodunit as anyone with half a brain could work out the killer very early on, and churned out overdone comedy routines and lines that the film then insists on doubling down on consistently. Packed with annoying side characters to complement the gratingly annoying central presence of Sandler, who shares so little chemistry with Aniston that it makes the idea of them being a couple whose relationship may be breaking up actually somewhat believable by accident. It wasn't the worst Adam Sandler film to date, but it wasn't a pleasant viewing experience. So when this second film started and felt like it was just going to play the same beats, I started to get worried. Then, when one of the most irritating support characters entered the fray, Adil Akhtar's Maharaja, I realised this was just going to be a copy and paste nonsense all over again. Cue dick jokes and farce that would put even the weakest French comedies of the early 80s to shame. Oh, and a reveal that once again, within seconds of the character first popping up on screen, it was obvious they were behind everything. I can't say this film is disappointing, because I didn't expect anything from it. It is, however, thankfully, only 90 minutes long. But be warned that it feels much, much longer. Not even the presence of names such as Mark Strong or Jodie Turner-Smith managed to lift this anywhere above mediocre. This film is the genuine result of what you would get if you ordered a copy of Knives Out from Wish.com. Terrible. Avoid it. Those are our reviews. What can we expect to find for our delectation over the next week? Well, by the time this show lands, you should also be able to see Super Mario Brothers animated movie that lands in cinemas this week. Also out this week is Air, the Ben Affleck directed story of Nike and their collaboration with Michael Jordan for the Air Jordans. Looks fantastic. Which we're looking forward to. Uh, Superman gets his 45th anniversary reissue across cinemas in the UK this week. Check your listings, find the show, get yourself go. it watched. Uh, Pope's Exorcist releases just in time for Easter because, hey, that makes sense. <laughs> Why not? And In the Court of the Crimson King is on limited cinema release if you want to catch that. Over on Now TV and Sky, the three dreaded words, a Sky original, are tagged to The Portable Door this week. Will I watch it? Yeah, probably you will. You will. I've just watched an Adam Sandler film this week. I can't do a double whammy of watching this this week as well. Uh, but over on Netflix, we've got Monster Hunter, which I had a fun time with when it got released round about lockdowns. Uh, Moon Age Daydream gets released on Netflix this week. And yep, Chupa, a family adventure, which sees a young boy find a mythical Chupacabra pup under the family home. Looks quite charming and fun. Might give that a shot. And over on Amazon, it was originally supposed to be out last year, and then it disappeared off everyone's radar. Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre, is finally getting an Amazon release. And on Paramount Plus, if you like those Pink Ladies, Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies series starts this week. And that, folks, that's pretty much it for this week. But of course, before we go, let's talk about our neat things. Stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we relish, stuff that we want to tell you about. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? So my neat thing for this week is Baby Metal, the other one. <laughs> I, I did notice that Baby Metal had returned to our our existence, shall I put it? They've returned to our plane of existence, yes. Uh, the band's fourth album, as with all of, all of their journey over the past decade and a bit, there's a story behind the concept of the album. Uh, their last tour ended with the remaining duo of Sue and Moa had left our galaxy and plane of existence, and we didn't know whether they'd come back. You know, the, these disciples of the fox god had apparently left our dimensions to go exploring else, elsewhere. Yeah, that. Well, the idea behind this album is that the tracks all represent the other realities that the pair have travelled to since that moment, where they've encountered other versions of themselves and other versions of the whole original trinity of um, baby metal. 
all that bonkers stuff aside, the album also has the very first song that has been written by Sue Metal herself, Divine Attack, and it's a cracking tune, as well as it feels tailored for the duo that the group have become since Yui left prior to the last album's release. And whilst we're teased at the arrival of a permanent replacement, which has been revealed this very morning, um, Mo Momo Metal is going to be stepping in permanently as the third member of the band. She subbed in on the recent tours um, after Yui left. This all means nothing to you. I can see on your face you're just looking at me with a blank expression. <laughs> I, I have heard Baby Metal. It's it's not my brand of vodka, but um, I can see why people enjoy it. The stuff around it I knew nothing about. and I, I, I When I gave my sort of introduction to it, I, I was thinking, that's not going to make the final cut. And it's actually made the final cut yeah, it perfectly. Does, because it, it, it fits. Um, Sue and Moa have refined their talents over the albums, and they work together brilliantly on this album. All the collection of tracks feels like they've discarded some of the more ad adolescent zaniness of previous albums and refined their meld of J-pop synth and distorted metal with the, the as-expected anthemic moments that are sure to have live crowds chanting along. And it's possibly their strongest and most mature album to date. Their new tours are starting at this point. I will be keeping a close eye for anything in the UK. And I can't wait to see this album performed live because every one of the tracks is an absolute anthemic banger of a track. I'll take your word for it. We have often talked about our love of Audible. I've just re-signed up to Audible and I started with uh, Stephen King, which why not? Stephen King and Audible go together so well. And I was attracted to this because I knew, A, nothing about the book. Secondly, it was 20 hours long and that's enough journeys to last me for a good month. And then the winning decisive factor is the book was read by the great John Slattery. He of Mad Men, he of uh, the Iron Man series for playing Tony Stark's father and the downright good actor uh so i'm in with duma key mm. now i'm gonna start off i'm not really gonna give much of the plot away the story centers on edgar Fremantle, who barely survives a, a severe worksite accident where his truck uh, is crushed by a crane he loses his right arm and suffers a severe head injury impairing his speech vision and his memory so to recover from these mood swings, uh, which has led to his wife uh, divorcing him, he moves out to the Florida coast, to the area known as Duma Key, uh, where he discovers that he has a, a talent for painting and drawing. But that painting and drawing at this stage, and I'm only halfway through, leads him to some very, very strange visions and the ability to see uh, possible futures. The start of it, despite it being read by John Slattery, I was at least an hour in and I still had no idea where this story was going. And I thought, to be honest, I thought I'd bought the first book that I wasn't going to make it through. And then, as ever with Stephen King, the story kicks in. And it's uh, both beautiful and it's both uh, down-to-earth and a gritty, realistic world with down-to-earth characters. Uh, it has the wit and energy that you would expect from all Stephen King. And then it enters into the world of the supernatural. And of course, that's what we expect. And that idea becomes incredibly scary. Uh, I'm only halfway through, but so far I am so in. And Audible do this so well. The actors that they pick to read their stories. I don't think I've ever been disappointed in that. And, and I know yeah. you're a big fan as well. They just have the right choices for the right material. And John Slattery is just perfect. He brings 
uh, a world weariness to this and and almost treats the supernatural aspects as well in that sort of uh, uh, realistic and and world weary fashion um you got me into the fletch books being read mm. with that i wasn't aware of the actor but now i can't hear fletch in my head unless <laughs> it's read by that particular guy so uh, my neat thing is both Audible and Stephen King's The Duma Key. And folks, that's it. We're done. I can't believe it. It's just in time for Easter, in time for all those Easter movies. In time for all that chocolate. Yeah, well, I'm hoping on an egg. I still, You know what? I still love I still love a chocolate Easter egg, I still even at this yeah. ripe old age. You'll never get too old for chocolate Easter eggs, even though you're basically paying four times the normal price of that same amount yeah. of chocolate but it's in an egg shape with a hollow center and usually some disappointing candy inside uh, but we love it there's something about it and uh contrary to what the gutter press will try to tell you they do have the word easter on the easter egg boxes in all your supermarkets it is yeah. there easter's not being cancelled folks it's not being cancelled at all so you're allowed to celebrate it so i i'm celebrating it as best as i can which is just generally working <laughs> well, I'll, I'll probably get to see you in the week in person because we both want to see the Ben Affleck movie air, don't uh, we? Yes. As soon as I find out when I can manage to slot that in, I definitely want to uh, get that watched. And I intend to be watching Super Mario as well because, hey, I'm a geek. <laughs> Have a good Easter, mate. And Take you, care buddy. of yourself. We shall see you again next week, despite Easter. And I haven't seen Berlin yet, from the ground or from the air. And I plan on doing so both before the war is over. Good luck. Right, thank you. Bugger! Uh, just get it so we've got it out of the way before we start, you know, just, just as a like trigger warning. Nothing yeah. about um, uh, Zack Snyder today. No uh, Snyder cult stuff. No. Oh, <laughs> I'm going Phew. to say no, but, but you know that I tend to drift off into that. <laughs> Just on a cleanse yeah. before we start. I mean, we will be mentioning some DC stuff, so it might spin off from it. But <laughs> there's no, there's, there's the, the cult have kind of gone quiet because they've got their event coming up anyway. So that and because they got that, they think they've won now and they're waiting for that to get the big news that Netflix is going to buy DC and so on and yeah. so forth. So they're just there and everyone's just kind of going delusional, but we'll wait. <laughs> So wait until the end of the month. That's when they're just going to go and start crying again. They should just like let you should let Zach make three more films and then hand over the DC. Yeah, why not just throw money away on three films that aren't going to profit just so you can get it past it? Yeah, Idiots. just for you. Guys. Anyway, just for you. We've got guys. that out. We've got it out of the way before the show. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to cleanse. <laughs> and, I, and I'm just going to cut and paste that and put it at the end of the show this week. <laughs> <laughs> With my, have you going to? You, you want to get it out of your system before we start? Yeah. <laughs> you, you could actually construct a show if I'm not there <laughs> just by just I think you did once, actually, didn't you? I, I pretty much did. When, when we had loads of recording issues, I just uh, yeah. cobbled cut and pasted loads of responses. I, I recorded a whole show without you there <laughs> as a result yeah. and just cut your responses in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can bluff this. It's great. <laughs> Just, can we just do? Can we get the AI to do it one week? Because there was that one, and there was the other one when it had recorded, but I sounded like I was in a warehouse right at the far side of the room. Oh yeah. And yeah. so I had to re-record. I had to add to ADR all of mine, which was fun <laughs> listening listening to how you'd asked me a question randomly, and then having to remember how I replied to it. It's great. <laughs> right. Thankfully, yeah, the listeners out there didn't notice. Yeah. yeah, they love us that much. 
Um, this is going on the end credits thing. There's more things going on the end credits thing before we've even started today. <laughs> can they make it to 162? Of course they can. We'll probably still be recording this episode when 162 starts. Yeah. The the anti Zack Snyder chat. Oh, sorry, I, 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 I broke I broke my promise. <laughs> Carry on. I don't think they noticed. And we've got a launch date, I believe. You might have. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they I thought they announced. Let me just open this up. And you're listening to the film file. Yes, the film file. I'll start that again. <laughs> Completely different film show. <laughs> We're talking about a film show you may not have listened to. It's another other film show. We don't care. Come with me and, and you'll, you'll see a world in a world of films and reviews and news. Oh, I'm glad and... you sang that. That wasn't ready. <laughs> Leave that in for the radio. Chat GPT. <laughs> write me a song about reviewing films <laughs> in a Willy Wonka style. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe tell us like how much you're enjoying the show. Remember the days when this show was really professional and we tried to take it seriously and now we just have fun. <laughs> now we just do it. Turn up, <laughs> now we, we do it. Now, now we just talk talk rubbish for a few hours and then edit it into some kind of semblance. <laughs> dive, dive, dive. Just waiting for that. <laughs> so if you remember the question that we set on our socials challenge about films that you usually see at Easter, <laughs> then this is one of those Sorry, films. I'm just chuckling to myself. <laughs> Then this is one of those films. I'm thinking, I'm thinking we need to do, and they're thinking we need to do U five seven one as a deep dive at one point, and we'll do the dive, dive, dive bit, and then it'll do like, and we're going to be deep diving U five seven one, and just do exactly the same dive, dive, dive bit, and ignore the rest of the trailer. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> there's something I have no interest in. I'll just leave that there. I'm going to watch it and review it. <laughs> It'll be my neat thing. You watch. Oh, let's hope not. <laughs> Just to spite you. <laughs>